You would think that Lee Goodkind, the man who wrote the book on creative nonfiction, who's been called by Vanity Fair the godfather of the genre and has written and edited some 30 books, would have turned the notepad on himself at some point. Now, at last, he has. This is Book Public, a podcast about books from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Lee Goodkind founded the creative nonfiction program and MFA degree in the genre, the first in the world, at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the publisher and editor of Creative Nonfiction magazine. He's reported on wide-ranging issues, including robots and artificial intelligence, mental illness, organ transplants, baseball. His immersive journalism has taken him deep inside these worlds. While Goodkind has been a longtime advocate of new journalism and has played a critical role in helping develop and establish literary narrative nonfiction in both the marketplace and the academy, he's been rather radio silent on his own personal story until now. We talked to Lee Goodkind about his latest book, My Last 8,000 Days, An American Male in His 70s. He spoke to us from his home in Pittsburgh. Everybody who's walked by my desk and, and looked at the book has asked, what does that title mean? What does the title My Last 8,000 Days mean? Can, so can you explain that for our listeners who have not yet read your book? Well, uh, I discovered um, through an article that I read by um, a guy from the MIT Age Lab uh, that we pretty much, the American male, uh, pretty much lives in sequences of 8,000 days. And so the first 8,000 takes you around about till you're 21. And at 21, you make some changes. And the next 8,000 days takes you to around um, the time when you want to begin to make more changes, you know, your second life, your second breath. And then the third 8,000 gets you to around 65. And if you live, uh, an, and from that point on, if you make it to 65, then you have approx- approximately a 50% chance to make it all the way to around 85. And I figure at 77 years old that, uh, that I'm in that group. I, I got 50% chance of moving forward. And uh, if all goes well, uh, maybe part of another 8,000 days after that. That that explains it. It's a great title. I love I love how idiosyncratic it is. And you are a writer of creative nonfiction and so prolific with so many books that you've written and edited. Um, and you are considered the godfather of creative nonfiction. But this is a memoir, and so it's not your usual immersive narrative journalism kind of project. So why I- now? Well, a number of reasons why now was the time. Um, For one thing, um, uh, yes, I have immersed myself for not just months, but years in uh, many subcultures, including uh, the early days of organ transplantation, robotics. I spent a year traveling with a crew of National League baseball umpires and and, and my first book was about the motorcycle subculture and traveling around the country. And, um, and, and so that was, they were wonderful, and I learned a great deal. But it took a lot of time and attention. 
and um, and took me away from life itself. When when you become somebody else, and that's what you do, you become somebody else when you immerse yourselves in their lives, you kind of lose your own identity. And so that was one reason, that I wanted to refine myself or discover myself or, or revisit what I had done over the past so many years and uh, find out what I was all about. And a number of things happened near my 70th birthday that made me want to do this now. Um, um, my two best friends, uh, we writers, we spend a lot of time, as I said, living other people's lives. And when we're not doing that, we're locked up in our office pounding away on a keyboard. And so you don't really have much of a social life. And, and so I had two best friends, and, and I could always count on them and to be with me or to communicate with me. And that year they both died, one quite suddenly and tragically uh, being run down um, by a car on a dark night in the middle of New Jersey. And then my mom died at 94, and she was my best friend, you know. Um, uh, boys and their moms, they stay together, and, and, and so she was suddenly gone. And finally, I had been working on a book off and on, another immersion book, for uh, three or four years. And I thought that this book, this book had such potential that uh, it would kind of um, be a wonderful finale to my literary career and life. And the book fell apart for all kinds of different reasons that I explain in my, my last 8,000 days. And so, and there it was, all facing me at my 70th birthday. And I thought, and I felt alone, and I felt disconnected. And uh, Yvette, the worst thing I felt was being so darn old and, um, and not knowing what was going to happen to me next. And so I thought, okay, now's the time to make a change, to look into my life, to take a deep, immersive dive into my life, just as I have in so many occasions by so many different, into so many other people's lives and start to find out what it is about myself that's good and that's bad and how, and what, and how I got to where I was and um, how I was going to make some sort of change uh, to make me feel better and less lonely and, and less scared of, I wasn't scared of dying as much as I was frightened about losing my identity, losing my ability to be productive and to think clearly, and, and losing my sense of who I was. Because when you're old, when you get old in this society, in America, people start not looking at you anymore. They look around you and they don't count, they discount you. And they don't think that you can be productive and um, and contribute anymore to the world. Did you experience that at all in your 60s or in your 50s? Did it just happen all of a sudden when you were about to turn 70? Did, did, or was it a kind of a gradual thing that you start to notice people don't treat you the same way or they expect that you should retire pretty soon or those kinds of things? Or did... Did it just happen more suddenly when you were about to turn 70? Um, I can't really answer that specifically because I am such a, a crazed, obsessed person. As long as I have a book and as long as I feel healthy and can run and uh, lift weights and do yoga, um, I feel pretty, pretty secure 
in myself. And it was the 70th birthday that kind of shook me up so much. And all those things that I just described happened uh, to me during that time that that made me suddenly realize that um, this kind of life, this obsessed, crazed, writer's, immersive writer's life might be over. And so as I look back in time, uh, I can see that already people um, were looking at me somewhat differently. The thing that I get now and that most of the people I get uh, uh, also experience as I be as I reached around my middle 60s was the awful, embarrassing, uncomfortable, wrong question, are you retired or when are you going to retire? Like we're supposed to just because our hair turns gray and our face gets a little bit more wrinkled, we're supposed to kind of um, – uh, back out of our life and and go sit in a lawn chair somewhere and just uh, as they say smell the roses and I was smelling the roses with my work up until I began to realize that other people were not perceiving me in that way. Was it difficult to write this book? I enjoy reading fiction, even about characters who are of a certain age and. Uh, sort of coming to terms with the idea of what you're saying around uh, the way society perceives us and so on. But was it difficult? I enjoy reading reading them. Maybe it makes me feel a little less alone. But what was it like to write about these things? Was there ever a moment where it was just it became too much for you? No, there wasn't a moment that it became too much for me. There were so many moments that it became too <laughs> much for me. Because as you deep, dig deeper into your own life, uh, you begin to uh, uh, uncover things that you either didn't realize or that you perceived um, in what turns out to be a wrong way. Um, it's not too different. It is not too different digging into your own life the way um, immersing yourself, taking a deep dive into what and who you are. It's not too different than going to uh, into in, than working with a psychiatrist. I mean, you go into um, the room with the psychiatrist and you tell a story, and the psychiatrist nods. And, uh, and, and encourages you to go onward, and you leave 45 or 40 minutes later thinking about uh, what it is you've talked about, and by the time the next section occurs and you begin to think about it seriously again, your perception of the story you told uh, goes about two or three levels deeper, and suddenly you begin to realize or remember things that uh, you didn't particularly remember when you first told the story. And it's that you go back again and again, you dig deeper and you realize more important things, how maybe we were wrong or how we perceived the situation differently. So when you write a memoir, and it took me almost 10 years to do this, I had the opportunity to shrink myself <laughs> and to dig deeper in my life. And the more I wrote stories and the more I analyzed the impact of those stories, the more they changed or they morphed into different stories. And so um, that was the process, and it was a much more challenging, as, as challenging as it was to be side-by-side side and dug deeply into the organ transplant world, for example, where I made a lot of friends who, 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 didn't, who didn't live or, 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 um, and, and surgeons who I thought were heroes that, who were not. 
but it was nothing compared to the continual looking at myself and writing the stories and then rewriting the stories and digging deeper all the time until I came out with um, what I considered to be the, the, the best truth, the deeper truth, the higher truth that I could find. Part of what comes through, too, in this book, Lee, is that we get to know a little bit more about you in your younger years and your relationship with your father and, and some other details. You've done all kinds of things in your life that have led you in a kind of a circuitous path to writing, publishing, and, and to academia. Uh, so can you talk about that a little bit? Um, academia. Uh, I never... I graduated uh, from high school in the bottom fifth of my class, um, and and I felt that I was going nowhere, and it was inconceivable for me at the time to ever consider myself the ever consider the possibility of becoming a university professor. In fact, it was nearly inconceivable for me to even consider being a college graduate. Um, I. I had nothing else to do. I had nowhere to go, and so I enlisted in the military, the U.S. Coast Guard, and spent some time there. And, and some, some good things happened to me, uh, two things especially. One, when I went into the Coast Guard, I weighed 220 pounds. Uh, maybe it was 225 pounds. And I thought that I needed to make that change as well. I didn't feel good about myself, and, and people made a lot of fun of me as well. The second thing, I stumbled into the University of Pittsburgh after I got out of the military and, uh, and found some people, one mentor more than others, who supported me. And all the way through the military when I was in boot camp and beyond, the one thing I thought I could do, I felt so uncomfortable that the one thing I thought I could do was read. And I spent tons of time in the library discovering books. And I began to take notes about those books. And, um, and, and I began to, con- began to conceive of myself the possibility of becoming, uh, becoming a writer and I got encouraged there at the University of Pittsburgh. And, and the other thing that happened was in the military was that I met so many different people from all walks of life, and, um, and I found that I could interact with them. I could almost become part of them. I, I maybe had no sense of myself at the time, but I had a really great sense of being a chameleon, and kind of slipping in from uh, and being a part of the world of guys from Georgia and Alabama and, and Vermont. And that was very exciting to me. And it really um, signaled the kind of life I wanted to live in the future. And so that's how I started writing about other things, uh, about other worlds, at the time when I was a student at Pitt. And no one was writing this what was then called the new journalism in any university writing program at all, and there I was, a guy uh, with with no with then not even a college degree, hanging out with all these uh, PhDs and a few accomplished writers, all of them wanting to teach poetry or to teach fiction, and then there was me 
the only guy there who wanted to, who believed in the idea that you could infuse narrative with information and begin to uh, excite students by the idea of experiencing life and writing about their life and communicating information at the same time. And so I was very lucky to be offered a staff position there as soon as my first book, Bike Fever, was published. And from that point on, um, there I was, um, <laughs> a college professor um, and, and an outcast at the same time, some guy who, who kind of invaded uh, the sacred halls of, uh, of Ivy uh, and, and began trumpeting creative nonfiction everywhere I could go and slowly but surely fighting the poets and fighting the fiction people and fighting the literature, the literature faculty, I convinced them or, or maybe forced them to <laughs> begin to acknowledge how important this creative nonfiction or new journalism was and how it could really help students understand all of the different genres and make a good choice and also be something that could be offered to lots more people who weren't interested in the writing life. They were just interested in recreating their own life and talking about what they did, whether it was plumbing or bricklaying or riding bikes, whatever it was. And so it took a long time to convince my faculty and then to begin to uh, go around the country, which is what I did. I became kind of a Johnny Appleseed of creative nonfiction and, um, and began to try to convince other people that this was really good for students and it was really good for literature and it blended everything. It was so exciting because it blended nonfiction, journalism, poetry and fiction all together you could take all of the literary tools that writers had um, and not follow formulas and and really be able to impact readers in all kinds of different ways and just to observe in the last 20 30 years how the field of creative nonfiction has really just bloomed in incredible ways indeed uh, it has and um, it's the people's genre it's open to absolutely everybody who has a story, who has lived a life. And, and I'm proud to say that what you just described, the excitement and the progress of creative nonfiction, started in a, um, the most unlikely place, um, a university, um, a, a conservative uh, English department, and spread throughout the country and the world. Um, creative nonfiction is incredibly popular in many other countries, New Zealand, Australia, the UK. It's really taken off, but it seems to have just sprouted from uh, the academics who have been able to see the, the, the potential dimensions of the genre and make it work. Yeah, I, I, I've had this conversation with people about how we can all be creative nonfiction writers. We're not all very good poets or very good fiction writers or novelists, but I think everybody who can tell a true story and tell it well, right, uh, is a nonfiction writer. It's uh, it's just such a powerful idea. Um, I, and uh, so speaking of creative nonfiction, I was in, in, a, in an audience at the Creative Nonfiction Conference in Pittsburgh where you gave the keynote address, and I was able to witness from 
my second row aisle seat <laughs> where you were the speaker, how people just respond to you. Um, and you are a much sought after speaker. So I've been wondering, how has engagement with people for you been since the pandemic? And and how has it affected your writing? You who are a writer who goes out and observes and immerses himself in different ways. Um, how has that been for you? It's been so exciting. Um, when you read my book, I see that about half or two-thirds of the way through the book, I do make a change, and I do learn that I can fuse what I describe in my book as my public uh, persona and and my and my private persona, persona, you can fuse those. At least I discovered that um, I didn't have to be working to be charming, and I didn't have to be working to reach out to other people and begin to talk to them and care about them. When I gave that speech, uh, it, it was uh, that 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 talk in 2018. I was going through the transformation at that point. But I always looked at, at, at um, my world in two different ways. There was the public me and the personal me. And, when, and the personal me was pretty much a loner. And, um, and that was okay. Writers are supposed to be learners. But I saw how terrific it was to interact with other people and, and, and uh, on a social basis, on a social level. And I remember that, that 2018 conference uh, because you don't, you don't know this, nobody knew this at the time, but 10 days before I had undergone uh, major surgery. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and it was the hardest, most difficult thing to do. I was in such discomfort, such pain um, uh, to stand up on that stage and, um, and, and talk passionately. Well, I'm always passionate about my work. And, and it was so uplifting to see those folks in the audience uh, respond so strongly. And then afterwards, um, again, I was very, I was in great discomfort, but um, it, was, it was a moment, the moment I knew, in fact, that um, I was going to sig- make significant changes in my life um, because um, despite the pain and discomfort, uh, there were those people who really appreciated um, the, the effort and the passion and the time and energy I put into uh, fighting for a genre. And it's, it's kind of silly when you think back, fighting for a genre. But I so believed that so many people in this world, 350 million people in the United States, um, have things to say. We all have things to say. And sometimes the journalistic community and the literary community kind of edge us out because you have to write poetry the way you're supposed to write poetry and there are rules and regulations in journalism. There are no specific literary rules or regulations in in creative nonfiction. We write what we feel and we try to be as honest and sincere and devoted to our work as possible and to our own stories. And that kind of um, that, that, that has carried on through this pandem- pandemic shadow that we're under right at this moment. And so I write, and then um, uh, I get out into the world, and I talk to people with masks, and I engage them. And, and even now, we're all so lonely, we're all so isolated. Um, um, if you reach out to someone who, who's walking the streets um, with six or eight feet, 
of distance between them, you can still make an impact. And if you don't mind me saying so, I think that um, this is what writers are all about. This is why we write. Anyone who writes because they want to write themselves is making a, a, a big mistake. We are writing because we are trying to uh, connect with other people to make an impact, to make a change in, our, in their lives based upon our own experience. And so, um, and so I'm still out there um, as much as I can, safe but, um, but, but ready to connect uh, both as a writer and as a human being. Well, Lee, we, we live in such an ageist society. I don't think it's ever been as ageist as it seems to be right now, um, or maybe I feel that way as I get older. Um, and it seems like an ism that will never get a lot of attention or appreciation. But what do you hope your book can do around restoring, at least understanding what it means to be older in the United States, still working, still writing, still working out, still socializing, still publishing, still uh, teaching. Because if we're lucky, maybe we'll get there too. What, what do you want us to know about this book that will help us? I think we have to be very aware and very proud of who we are. And I think that we um, can, must address the world and address the public in, in, a, in a strong and positive way as possible. I try, when I walk the streets, I try to make sure that I stand up straight. There is this sense that the older person uh, kind of stoops over, sometimes drags his feet. And sometimes we have to because of health issues. But I do everything I can to collect myself and, and, and address the public in a posit strong and pro positive way, remembering all the time, when I can, um, what I am all about, what I have achieved and what I can continue to achieve and do, even though I'm growing a little slower and, and, and obviously a little older. And I also, Yvette, think that it is okay for us, uh, the 70 million people in the United States who are baby boomers, 70 and over, I think it's okay for us to get angry sometimes when people ask us if we're retired or when, um, when you walk into a store or see someone you know or don't know and they say to you stuff like, um, how are you, young man? I'm not a young man. And, and uh, I know they're being kind to me and making me try to feel as if, um, as if I'm younger or part of their lives, but I know who I am, and, and um, I speak out. I'm not a young man, I say. I'm 77 years old, but I'm just as strong as you are. And, um, and I think we just have to uh, be a little defensive and um, fight for our uh, fight for who we are and what we are and what we have achieved. And, I, and I, I'm hoping that people will understand, my readers will understand me and the effort I made to deep dive into my own life and to come out on the other side um, as a better person and more positive person. And I also hope that they understand that just because they may only have 8,000 days to live, that you're supposed to make the absolute positive 100% best 
of every of those 8,000 days that you have left. Lee Gookin, thanks so much for talking to me today. And thank you for being such a champion of creative nonfiction. It means so much to so many people. I feel sometimes like the genre needs to get even more respect, and I think that your book is helping that along. Thank you. Lee Goodkind is the author of My Last 8,000 Days, An American Male in His 70s. It's published by the University of Georgia Press. Lee Goodkin is also the professor and writer-in-residence in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. This has been Book Public, a podcast about books on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.